to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, October 5th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Trump sues CNN for $475 million. Ukraine attacks Luhansk, while Russian lawmakers ratify annexation of four regions. Elon Musk faces Twitter backlash over his Ukraine peace plan. Musk also proposes buying Twitter at the original price. North Korea launches a missile over Japan. Bangladesh suffers a nationwide power blackout. A prominent radio host is assassinated in the Philippines. A report alleges systemic abuse in women's soccer. The man who recovered the Neanderthal's genome wins the Nobel Prize. And Australia targets zero extinction for endangered species. In our top story, Donald Trump sues CNN for defamation and seeks $475 million. And here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, NBC, Guardian, and Wall Street Journal. On Monday, former U.S. President Donald Trump sued CNN, alleging that the news network defamed him to hinder any future political campaigns he may pursue. CNN didn't provide immediate comment. In the 29-page complaint, Trump's lawyer said CNN highlighted any negative information about the plaintiff while ignoring all positive information about him, adding that the news outlet tried to use its massive influence, purportedly as a trusted news source, to defame the plaintiff in the minds of its viewers and readers. The lawsuit further claimed CNN attempted to smear Trump by labeling him a racist, Russian lackey, insurrectionist, and ultimately Hitler citing several examples when the network compared Trump to the late Nazi leader. The lawsuit added, CNN's campaign of dissuasion in the form of libel and slander against the plaintiff has only escalated in recent months as CNN fears the plaintiff will run for president in 2024. Trump has yet to affirm whether or not he will run in the 2024 election. Filed in the U.S. District Court for Southern Florida, the lawsuit calls for $475 million in punitive damages, as well as compensatory damages to be determined at trial. For a public figure such as Trump to win a defamation suit, he must pass a high bar, including proving that a news outlet acted with actual malice and either knowingly published a false statement or showed reckless disregard for the truth. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts that all our sources agree on, and here are the spins that don't agree. Let's start with the left narrative from Newsweek. Not only will it be virtually impossible to prove defamation in court, but this lawsuit does little other than remind us of all the reasons why political commentators compare Trump to other authoritarian leaders. It has little chance of progressing past a motion to dismiss and is primarily a rant-filled political manifesto. And there is a pro-Trump narrative coming from conservative fighters. After having asked CNN to make retractions regarding their false reporting, to which they responded by only ramping up their guerrilla journalism tactics, Trump had no other choice than to go to court. This is just the beginning of the lawsuits against media organizations that covered Trump unfairly during his campaigns and as president. And he has every right to bring his concerns into the legal arena. And we have a nerd narrative provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. They say that there's an 83% chance that Donald Trump will run for the office of president of the United States in the year 2024. This lawsuit has has come up here. CNN, uh, uh, they have a new CEO, Chris Licht. He recently announced a change in strategy from reporting negatively on Trump to trying to be more neutral. So for this lawsuit to come out now is kind of tough. 
Just yesterday, Trump and Ted Turner playing golf in Pebble Beach together. So I, I really don't know what's going on. You know what? Those guys have played golf together. No question oh, you, in my you mind. You know they have. Right? You and me on a team against play some skins against Trump and Turner. Absolutely. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. And as the calendar turns to day 223 of the crisis in Ukraine, Ukraine launches an attack on Luhansk and Russian lawmakers ratify the annexation of four regions. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Pravda, TASS, MSN, the Associated Press, and Ukraine Forum. Following vast advances in the Kharkiv region, Ukrainian forces have neared the administrative border of Luhansk, one of four territories annexed by Russia on Tuesday, and launched a number of attacks on the region in the last 24 hours, according to the exiled head of the military administration for the region, Serhii Haidai. In contrast, Andrei Marachko, a military official from the self-proclaimed Luhansk People's Republic, or LPR, claimed Ukrainian forces had attempted to cross the administrative border but were destroyed by pro-Russia forces that pushed them back to their previously held positions. The claim couldn't be independently confirmed. Elsewhere, the Russian Federation Council, the upper house of the country's parliament, unanimously ratified the annexation of the Ukrainian regions of Donetsk, Kherson, Luhansk, and Zaporizhia on Tuesday. It comes after the State Duma, the lower house, unanimously ratified the annexations a day earlier. Meanwhile, as speculation and investigations into the attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines continue, Britain's Defense Ministry on Monday announced that it has sent a Royal Navy ship to the North Sea to work alongside Norwegian counterparts to reassure those working near the gas pipelines. In other news, speaking on the condition of anonymity, U.S. officials said the country would soon be sending four additional high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, to Ukraine having previously announced 18 additional HIMARS would be made available for purchase through loan agreements. On the ground, Ukrainian officials reported that three civilians were killed in Russian attacks in the last 24 hours, two in Kharkiv and one in Donetsk. Russian attacks were also recorded in Sumy and Dnipropetrovsk, resulting in four civilian injuries. There were no new reports of civilian casualties from pro-Russia officials at this stage. Scott, thank you for the update of the Ukraine conflict. We have some spins that have emerged beginning with an anti-Russia narrative coming from Newsweek. Ukrainian forces advancing through Kharkiv and to the Luhansk region are destroying Russia's most elite and valuable troops, all while the Kremlin continues struggling to effectively train and equip new personnel. The gains from this counteroffensive could mark a turning point in favor of Ukraine. Contrast that with this pro-Russia narrative from TASS. Russian forces are holding the line against Ukrainian counterattacks, which are coming at an exceptionally high cost to manpower and military equipment for Ukraine's army. These losses are not sustainable, and Russia will continue to secure newly annexed regions and defend their populations. And a nerd narrative says there's a 9% chance that at least one nuclear weapon will be detonated in Ukraine before 2023. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. What does that mean? You want to talk about some, there's a 9% chance that at least one nuclear weapon, it means we're f***ed, Eric. <laughs> in our next story, Elon Musk faces Twitter backlash over a Ukraine plan. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, Al Jazeera, Fox News, and Reuters. On Monday, Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk sparked controversy when he tweeted his idea for a potential Russia-Ukraine peace plan. This included a Twitter poll on whether the plan would help end the fighting. 
Musk's tweet called for redoing elections in annexed regions under U.N. supervision, with Russia leaving, if that is the will of the people. He also suggested that Crimea should be formally part of Russia, with an insured water supply, and Ukraine should remain neutral. Among the negative replies to the tweet from Ukrainian officials was one from President Zelensky and Ukraine's ambassador to Germany, Andriy Melnyk, who wrote, F*** off, is my very diplomatic reply to you, at Elon Musk. Musk's poll, which received more than 2.7 million votes, initially showed approval of the plan, but eventually worked out to around 60% responding no. Musk, who has shown support for Ukraine in the past by providing his Starlink internet service, responded to the criticism by saying his proposed plan was the highly likely outcome and that the main issue was the number of lives lost before it comes to fruition. A Kremlin spokesperson voiced support for Musk's plan, saying, quote, it is very positive that somebody like Elon Musk is looking for a peaceful way out of this situation. All right. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an anti-Russian narrative coming in from Fox News. Russia is committing genocide in Ukraine. Yet Musk thinks the best thing to do is to negotiate peace on Moscow's terms. He may have shown his support for Ukraine in the past, but statements like this only hurt the Ukrainian cause, which calls for the liberation of their entire sovereign nation. It's quite telling that the Kremlin reacted so positively to Musk's words. The pro-Russian narrative is being provided by RT. It's a testament to the power of Western and Ukrainian propaganda that when someone suggests peace is the best outcome, they're mercilessly attacked by a mob of war-hungry Twitter keyboard warriors. Most of those attacking Musk were undoubtedly pro-Ukrainian bot accounts, with the sole purpose of subverting the discourse regarding the situation in Ukraine. Peace and compromise shouldn't be controversial. And we have another statistics-based nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 3% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russian-Ukraine conflict before 2023. I want to just point out that that nerd narrative doesn't say there's a 3% chance there will be a peaceful resolution. There's a 3% chance that they will meet to discuss a peaceful resolution. It's not looking great. Yeah, those aren't very good odds for sure. No. And Elon Musk makes the news again as he proposes buying Twitter at the original price. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, New York Post, Fox News, and the Chicago Tribune. Amid the ongoing legal battle between Elon Musk and Twitter over his attempt to back out of the agreement to purchase the platform, the billionaire reportedly offered to buy Twitter for his original price of $54.20 per share on Monday. Musk had initially agreed to take over the social media company in April, but backed out over allegations that Twitter misrepresented the number of fake accounts on its platform. Twitter subsequently sued Musk, accusing him of violating his agreement. In response, the billionaire filed a countersuit. Twitter stock jumped nearly 13% to around $48 after the news broke, with the New York Stock Exchange halting trades of its shares and listing news pending as the reason for the pause. With Musk reportedly alerting Twitter's lawyers to the offer late Monday night, the two sides allegedly met in a private Delaware chancery court on Tuesday morning to discuss an agreement. Due to the contentious battle between the two parties, Twitter has reportedly insisted that the Delaware court supervise the closing, with an unidentified source familiar with the matter saying the long-fought issue could come to a close within days. If the purchase is finalized, it's unclear what Musk's intentions for the company include. However, before he attempted to back out of the deal, he informed investors that his goal was to increase Twitter's daily users to 500 million and revenue to 13.2 billion by the year 2025. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We have two spins that have emerged, beginning with Narrative A being provided by the Dallas Morning News. 
This latest development, which comes just two weeks before Twitter's lawsuit was scheduled to go to trial, is a blatant attempt to save face. Musk would likely lose his legal fight and be forced to finalize the original purchase price anyway, with potential penalties. After months of attacking Twitter in court and online, the billionaire has finally accepted that he must follow through with his agreement. And Wisconsin Public Radio brings us Narrative B. First, Musk forced a billion-dollar company that had no intention of selling to accept his offer. Then he tried to back out, leading to bombshell revelations regarding the inner workings of Twitter, before finally putting his offer back on the table. Though it's hard to predict anything related to this roller coaster of a story, Musk may have been playing 4D chess this entire time. You think he's just a drama queen with a lot of money? Maybe. Man, I wish I was. I'm just a drama queen. <laughs> I know, right? We turn our attention to North Korea as they launch a missile over Japan. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Washington Post, Guardian, NPR Online News, and Reuters. On Tuesday, North Korea fired a long-range ballistic missile over Japan, prompting the prime minister's office to warn residents in the country's northeastern regions to take cover, the first such alert in five years. The launch represents an unprecedented number of North Korean missile tests this year. North Korea's fifth missile test in 10 days occurred during a U.S.-led military exercise in the region. The exercise featured forces from South Korea and Japan and involved the nuclear aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan. While Japanese officials called the launch outrageous, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul warned of a resolute response. The U.S. Department of State said the launch was reckless and dangerous and posed an unacceptable threat to the Japanese public. According to South Korean officials, the missile launch took place from North Korea, aimed eastward. The missile reached an altitude of 603 miles, or 970 kilometers, at a top speed of Mach 17 and a flight path of about 2,500 miles, or 4,000 kilometers. Some analysts fear the gradual buildup of tensions in the region increases the possibility for North Korea to restart nuclear testing. South Korean intelligence told lawmakers that North Korea could conduct a nuclear test between China's Communist Party Congress this month and the U.S. midterm elections in November. Thanks for these uh, frightening facts, Eric. Red State brings us the Republican narrative. You can't blame Kim Jong-un for flexing North Korea's military muscle when Biden is recklessly saber-rattling with Taiwan and China. How does Kim know the U.S. won't also team up with South Korea for an invasion of the North? Trump's relationship with and policies towards North Korea meant a more stable Korean peninsula. And a Democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. Kim Jong-un's geopolitical actions have been erratic, and his missile launches are destabilizing the peninsula. Instead of provoking a confrontation, the North Koreans should take the Biden administration up on its offer to meet without preconditions and settle any of his grievances peacefully. Biden is showing strength and prudence in the region. Bangladesh faces a power blackout after their national grid fails. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NDTV, DW, the United News of Bangladesh, the Dhaka Tribune, and S&P Global Commodity Insights. On Tuesday, a massive power grid failure plunged 140 million out of Bangladesh's near 170 million population into widespread blackouts. Only portions of the country's northwest were unaffected. The outage occurred suddenly at approximately 2 p.m. local time. Bangladeshi officials are investigating the cause of the presumed technical failure, with power expected to be restored to Dhaka Tuesday evening. Bangladesh has struggled with energy security this year as skyrocketing natural gas prices, which comprise approximately 75% of the country's power generation, forced the central government to impose regular outages to conserve energy. 
In July, three demonstrators protesting the outages and inflation were reportedly killed by security forces. The Association of Mobile Telecom Operators of Bangladesh also warned that telecommunications would likely be disrupted in parts of the country while the grid failure is in progress. In July, Bangladesh's State Minister for Power, Energy and Mineral Resources, Nasrul Hamid, urged citizens to conserve energy. Referencing the COVID pandemic and the Ukraine war, Hamid stated, The impact of the world has created huge volatility in the global energy market. The international food market is also in a dismal situation. This has put us in a dangerous situation. To diversify its energy sector, Bangladesh is looking to ramp up its capacity to generate power from coal domestically and through imports from India. In the coming months, Dhaka hopes to increase domestic coal energy production from 8% to 17% and increase its energy imports from 4% to 11%. Those were the facts. Thank you, Scott. And here are two spins, beginning with Narrative A coming from Daily Star. Patience is needed as Bangladesh rides the global energy disruptions catalyzed by the Russia-Ukraine war. The downstream effects impact developing nations like Bangladesh especially hard. Nonetheless, Dhaka is pressing ahead with purchasing energy fields and planning to deliver power to the nation's rural regions. These efforts will take some time under challenging global conditions. And Narrative B comes from the business standard. There is certainly global energy stress like the Ukraine war, but Bangladesh has long lagged in developing a diversified energy sector, including decreasing reliance on fossil fuels and imports. Dhaka needs to invest in solar power and explore domestic gas reserves if it hopes to be more resilient to global energy shocks and stressors. In our next story, a radio broadcaster from the Philippines, Percy Lapid, has been murdered. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Manila Bulletin, Rappler, CNN Philippines, Washington Post, and New York Times. Philippine authorities confirmed on Tuesday that journalist and radio host Percival Mabasa, known as Percy Lapid, was killed on Monday night during an ambush outside his gated community in Las Piñas, Metro Manila. According to local police, two motorcycle-riding gunmen approached Mabasa's car and shot him twice in the head. An investigation is underway to identify and locate the attackers. While the motive of the attack hasn't yet been determined, the Presidential Task Force on Media Security presumes it to be work-related. The Philippine National Police and the National Bureau of Investigation are also involved in the case. Mabasa, who was a prominent critic of President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., is reportedly the second journalist to be killed under the Marcos Jr. administration, according to the National Union of Journalists of the Philippines. On September 18th, radio broadcaster Ray Blanco was stabbed to death. The union claims that the Philippines remains dangerous for journalists, reporting that another 195 media workers, including at least 97 radio reporters, have been killed in the country since 1986. Foreign governments, including Canada and the Netherlands, who co-chair the Media Freedom Coalition in the Philippines, urged authorities to take, quote, concrete steps to bring Mabasa's murderers to justice and create a safe environment for journalists. We have an establishment critical narrative from Rappler. This brazen killing demonstrates how dangerous it is to be a journalist in the Philippines and that press freedom remains under attack nationwide. Authorities must be diligent and conduct an impartial investigation of this tragic crime, tackling the culture of impunity that has been encouraging such attacks. And the pro-establishment narrative coming from Manila Times. Philippine President Marcos Jr. has personally ordered authorities to investigate the unacceptable murder of Percy Lapid indicating his unwavering commitment to ensuring the security of journalists. The Presidential Task Force on Media Security has been working together with local police to release a thorough investigation as soon as possible. 
the government is committed to justice. Does this podcast like to... happen to air in, in the Philippines by chance? <laughs> I'm not sure, but I'd like to go on official record and say I fully support the Marcos Jr. regime in every way. <laughs> Absolutely. And a report claims systemic abuse of players in women's soccer. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ESPN, The New York Times, CNBC, and Axios. Following an independent investigation by former U.S. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, a report released Monday found a list of failures by the National Women's Soccer League, or NWSL, related to allegations of abuse by coaches. The report, released a year after players protested multiple public allegations against coaches, found that owners, executives, and coaches within the NWSL and the U.S. Soccer Federation failed to act on years of reported verbal, emotional, and sexual abuse. The report found that the abuse was rooted in a deeper culture in women's soccer, beginning in youth leagues, that normalizes verbally abusive coaching and blurs boundaries between coaches and players. Among the coaches specified in the report was Christy Holly, the male former head coach of the Louisville Racers. Holly is alleged to have sexually molested then-player Aaron Simon while the two reviewed game film together. Former NWSL players Sinead Farrelly and Mana Shim's accusations against former North Carolina Courage coach Paul Riley were also reported on. Farrelly alleged Riley harassed and sexually coerced her between 2011 and 2015. Yates' report also included recommendations, including eliminating non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreements, requiring coaches to obtain annual recertification, and suspending the licenses of coaches engaged in misconduct. Scott, thank you for the facts. Two spins have emerged, beginning with an establishment-critical narrative coming from the Philadelphia Inquirer. What's devastatingly ironic about this report, as well as the revelations of the past year, is that those in charge of the NWSL claim to prioritize the well-being of female athletes, but their actions spoke differently. Immense shame should be felt not only by abusive coaches, but by those in power who could have stepped in but chose to sweep rampant abuse under the rug. And the Huffington Post gives us the pro-establishment narrative. Though misconduct could and should have been addressed much earlier, the league has now accepted its hidden culture of abuse and will take significant actions to end the vicious cycle that so many women endured. The recommendations outlined in Yates' report will help the NWSL take the positive steps necessary to clean up its institution. In our next story, Pabo's evolution research wins Nobel Prize for medicine. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Daily Caller, and Time. Swedish geneticist Svante Pabo on Monday was named the winner of the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his work sequencing the first Neanderthal genome to reveal that Homo sapiens interbred with Neanderthals. Pabo, whose work was first made public in 2010, has emerged as a leader in extracting, sequencing, and analyzing ancient DNA from Neanderthal bones. His research has proven that current humans share 1 to 4% of their DNA with Neanderthals. Pabo's team also extracted DNA from a small finger bone found in a cave in Siberia, Russia, which led to the recognition of a new species of ancient humans, the Denisovans. As for modern-day applications for Pabo's work, he was able to show how genes inherited from Neanderthals impact the human body and even how it responds to COVID infections. Pabo has worked as the director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany since 1997, and is an honorary research fellow at London's Natural History Museum. Washington Post brings us Narrative A on this story. It's great that the Nobel Committee is willing to expand its reach beyond the traditional categories of medicine, physiology, and chemistry to award a distinguished researcher like Pabo this award. 
His work directly provides a window into understanding questions of health and disease by shedding light on the deep history of human ancestry. And Narrative B is courtesy of Daily Mail. Granted, Pabo's research is fascinating, and there is even some application to our struggle to understand COVID. However, the COVID pandemic is the health crisis of our time. Without the mRNA vaccines, who knows how much more death and illness there would be right now. Awarding the prize to those who have helped to address death and suffering for millions is long overdue. And our final story, Australia targets zero extinction plan to save endangered species. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, CNN, and Voice of America. On Tuesday, Australia's environmental authorities announced an ambitious zero-extinction plan to provide protection and restoration of the country's endangered species and natural places over the next 10 years. Despite being one of the world's wealthiest nations, Australia received a poor grade on its protection of animal species. Wildlife habitats have reportedly declined because of events like the Black Summer bushfires in 2019 and 2020, which saw around 3 billion animals killed, injured, or displaced. The $145.9 million Threatened Species Action Plan Toward Zero Extinctions will reportedly prioritize 110 species and 20 natural habitats, where the most action is needed to prevent new extinctions from taking place and promises to preserve at least 30% of Australia's land. While conservationists have cheered the plan, some have concerns that the government is picking winners by prioritizing certain species when nearly 2,000 species are listed as threatened based on national laws. The State of the Environment 2021 report, released this July, found that the country has lost more mammal species than any other continent. The previous coalition government decided not to release the report ahead of May's election, with speculation that the report's content was so dire they feared they would lose the looming election. Australia has designated September 7th as National Threatened Species Day to raise awareness of plants and species at the risk of extinction. New South Wales has warned that species extinction is not just an Australian problem and has said one million species will face extinction globally in the coming decades. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Two spins have emerged beginning with the establishment critical narrative coming from Guardian. While it's about time Australia joins other developed nations in their conservation efforts, this new plan is lacking. It boasts an impressive zero-extinction goal, but provides little direction on how to get there and dismally overlooks many of the country's more than 1,900 endangered species. It remains to be seen what this plan will actually achieve. And Voice of America gives us our final narrative, and it is a pro-establishment spin. This is promising news for the conservation and preservation community. While admittedly this only scratches the surface, this plan is a great first step in addressing Australia's endangered species and will pave the way to greater solutions. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, October 5th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.